All right, if you have your Bibles, turn to Ephesians chapter 6, Ephesians chapter 6. I'm so excited about what Annie shared with us this morning. Uh, this has been a need in our church for many years now, and uh, I'm so glad when God lays on the heart of people to step things up and, and, and see a void in our ministry and say, you know, we need to offer this. So I encourage you, young professionals, I'm not sure I would consider myself a young professional anymore, not sure I would have when I was younger considered myself a young professional. Whatever you do, be a part of that if you're unmarried, I guess is the terminologist you use. So I hope you'll be a part of that. Now today what we're going to do is we're basically going to do a little mini Bible study in the book of Ephesians. We're going to allow what Paul was saying here in Ephesians chapter 6. Really, it, it really is, summarizes a lot of what he already says in the whole letter itself. And so this morning, we're going to go and look at different things in chapter 1, chapter 2, and I believe chapters 4 and 5, and we're going to prove the point of what Paul is trying to say, and it's almost like he comes to what we're looking at today, and he's creating a general conclusion about some things, and I'll prove that in just a moment. But we're continuing the series, Suit Up. And last week, we looked at the breastplate of righteousness, which really, when you think about it, we talked about five types of righteousness. And the main point of that righteousness was for us to look at what's called positional righteousness. It means we stand in what Jesus provided on the cross. We literally have taken on his righteousness because we've received him into our lives. We've repented of our sins by faith, placed ourselves in Christ. That's going to be important as we talk about it this morning. And as a result, we have now salvation by faith. Now, once we build on that, it's really what we're looking at today. Today, we're looking at the shoes of the gospel of peace. So we go from the idea of being righteous before God. That means we declared righteous. We're on our way to heaven. We're God's child, provided what Jesus offered on the, by way of the cross. But now, today, how should we live in light of that? And that's where we come to the shoes of the gospel of peace. Now, when we talk about shoes, I think many people would say, you know, shoes are very important. But if you were to go back into the first century and all the ancient uh, uh, empires and all that, any, any uh, general, anyone who's over the army would tell you that footwear was the most important piece of equipment an army could have. And it's so vital because uh, the only fighting that was done was infantry. And it was on the ground, boots on the ground, and that's how things were, how battles were fought. Now, Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great, many people have said, why were they so good at what they did? Why were they able to do what they did? And many people credit, because, credit them because the soldiers had the right footwear. They could get in places very quickly quicker than most people, than others have. And so they relied on this. Josephus, a Jewish historian who wrote in the first century, tells us that the Roman soldier's shoes were sandals with thick soles, and there were literally nails that would come out on the bottom to help them uh, have stability while in battle. The closest thing we see in that today is uh, turning on a football game and watching football, and you see the big linemen up there. And, and, and the thing is, these big guys, I mean, some are like 300 pounds, 6'5", I mean, they, they're beasts. <laughs> and, and, and they literally are really no good if it weren't for the spikes on their shoes. If they didn't have the spikes to ground them, it doesn't matter how big they are, they're going to fall. 
But you see that on the linemen, even in football. But look at uh, the soldier here. You'll see a picture of the soldier. And uh, no soldier? Okay. Our soldier left the building. You, you got any pictures of spike shoes? Okay. All right, I got to work on that. Okay, Ephesians chapter 6, 6. Look at verse 15. You can imagine with me this morning. Okay. And having feet shod, I mean, having shod, that means strapped or laces tightened your feet, feet that would ground you to the ground. As we already taught how important that is. With the preparation, and that's the idea, the readiness to face the enemy with firm-footed stability. But what is all this in? It can't just exist without something. It's grounded in the gospel of peace. And the reason we know that is because this idea is really centers around what the gospel supplies. It, it brings peace or rest in, in, in the message of what it supplies. So I want you to look at the introduction with me as we jump in this morning. There are two main ideas as it relates to the shoes of the gospel of peace. First is the idea of taking the gospel to those who need the gospel of peace. You're going to be doing that in your connect groups. That's the reason it's so important you be a part of a connect group. You're going to, look at, you're going to be looking at one side of what this, this phrase could mean when it talks about what we just read, having your feet shod, your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. But there's a second idea, and it's the idea of living daily in what the gospel of peace has provided us as a follower of Jesus. And that's what we're going to be looking at uh, in this sermon this morning. Now, before we do, let me give you some definitions. As it relates to the idea of battle, peace, of course, is the opposite of war. Okay? Peace is the opposite of war. Peace is also not living in conflict with others or oneself. Now, let me ask you, how many of you, how many of you can relate to a conflict with others? Anybody ever been there? Okay, some of you got them hands up real quick. I'm starting to think there's something going on. But anyway, y'all can work that out yourselves. But but how many of you how many of you've ever how many of you've ever had conflict within yourself? Man, there's nothing worse than that. I mean, at least with a conflict with someone else, you can kind of go and hash things out and sit down and go. But boy, when there's conflict within, that can be very disturbing at times. And sometimes, I don't know about you. Sometimes I'm not so sure of the source of the conflict within me. Sometimes it takes time to get away and, 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 and ponder and reflect on where, what's the source of this. But let me tell you where a lot of people are. A lot of people just kind of ride over it. They get real busy. And they start exerting themselves in so many different things. And, and, and what they're attempting to do is push down the conflict where it's not as apparent to them, you say, how do you know this? I've done this. I did this for years. Some of you are doing it right now. And you're not dealing with those things that are there that's causing your spirit not to rest. It doesn't bring peace to your soul. And so when you look at this, you've got to, you've got to say, well, what's really happening within me? And we're going to talk more about what that means in just a moment. The second word I want to define is the gospel. The saving truth of what Jesus provides through his death, burial, and resurrection. If you were to say, give, give me the gospel, that's what it is. It's the good news of what Jesus provided for us by way of the cross and telling that story. So this morning, as we look as it 
at it as it relates to our daily lives, here's one place we need to look. Look on your outline. Standing in the place of the peace of the gospel. Now, the shoes of the gospel of peace is a picture of a trusting confidence in the promises of God. It's literally the idea of standing on the promises of salvation and its privileges. How many of you know the song, the hymn, Standing on the Promises? Standing on the promises that cannot fail when the howling storms of doubt and fear assail. By the living word of God, I shall prevail. Standing on the promises of God. How many of you wish I'd have sung that? Yeah, it's not going to happen. But anyway, but, but, but you, you hear, and it really is one of those things that really just kind of, uh, we hear it, we know it. Many of you remember it from your childhood or different things. But you look at this and you say, you know, it really is all about what Jesus has provided. And it truly is. And it's standing on those promises. So what are we standing on? First of all, stand in God's provision of forgiveness. In, in Ephesians chapter 1, if you'll turn over there, it's just a couple of pages. I'm only going to let you look here in the book of Ephesians this morning. We're going to keep it simple. In Ephesians chapter 1, the Bible says, in him, that means being in Jesus, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, through his blood. My daughter and I went to the fair Friday night, and of course, uh, we've kind of uh, out age the the ride so we do what many of you do now we go grazing up and down the midway there for food y'all know what I'm talking about how many of you get the fries I had I I, I had three of those um, <laughs> uh, anyway we'll move on but um but, but but what was interesting we went through the exhibit hall and there was a lady there and she said can I ask you a question sir I said yes ma'am she said uh do you are you certain you'll go to heaven when you die Really, I mean, I thought it was a great question. I, mean, I used to ask people that myself all the time. And, and I said, yes, ma'am, we are. My, my, my daughter's sitting there dying laughing. And, 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 and she said, well, tell me why you think that. I said, the blood of Jesus. And she said, she about had a fit. She went into this hallelujah, you know. <laughs> but really, when you think about it, that's really what it is. The blood of Jesus. The blood of Jesus. And that's where our, well, our positional righteousness is all about. And it literally means that we're free from the powerless, from being powerless against sin and the enemy. That's what it means when he, he talks about the blood. But then he goes on and we see the forgiveness of sins. Now, I want you to think about sin. And this is how great God's plan for salvation is. It doesn't matter what you have done. You can be saved. Your sin can be forgiven. Probably one of the worst atrocities that's ever happened, and at least in the world we're aware of, is, is what Hitler did to the Jews. And we, we, we see that, and we think it's the most horrifying thing that could be done to other human beings and how someone's trying to wipe off the face of the earth, a, a whole race of people. But you know what's really interesting when you think about the grace of God and how far it reaches? Did you know, and I'm convinced of this, that if Hitler fell under conviction, and desired salvation after all these atrocities. You know what the Bible says? That grace is sufficient for him too. That blows my mind. Of course, we don't see any indication that happened. But that's how far-reaching God's grace is through Jesus Christ. So it doesn't matter what you've done. 
your sin can be forgiven, no matter what it is. Many of followers of Jesus are still, however, they're living a shame-based identity. They're paralyzed, disabled, crippled spiritually. Think about what our salvation provides. We're, that means we have power over sin. We have power over those influences that come our way. Those, those things that we believe about ourselves that are false. That's the reason we need to know the Word of God and what it says about us instead of what the world's telling us or what our parents may have told us. We start listening to what God's Word says about us. And we live in that accordingly. And that's what we're talking about with the idea of forgiveness. But some people are still under a shame-based identity. And then there's other ones who are under a performance-based identity. And you're exhausted, and you're busy, and you're spent, and you think, i just got to keep going, i got to keep going, i got to earn my way there, earn your way there. It, it, it doesn't come by way of that. But we should all have a Christ-based identity. And let me tell you what this verse tells us it is. Forgiven, rest, and peace. That's what our salvation brings. That's what our salvation brings. So we need to stand in the provision of forgiveness. In Ephesians chapter 1 verse 7, let's continue. It says, in him we have redemption. How? Through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according, now this is, this is key, according to, it means by way of the riches or the provisions of his grace. The word grace there is unmerited favor, unconditional favor. It's literally leaving works completely out of the equation. It's just God's favor, God's favor. I want to show you something here on the screen. First of all, you have God's mercy. A lot of people are like, well, you know, we've got mercy, we've got grace. What are we really looking at here? It means it reaches, God's mercy reaches out to address the sad condition we are in because of our sin and its consequences. God's mercy reached out in light of that. We were born in sin. I mean, you know, we, we, I think we all can fairly say we know that. We prove it pretty much every day. But God's mercy reached out to the condition that we were in, and we were powerless to do anything about it. And his mercy motivated him to reach out. Secondly, we see God's grace, and it reaches out to address our sin by providing forgiveness. It's almost like he goes for mercy, and he's motivated by his mercy to act in grace. And so he acts in grace by providing forgiveness and bring us into the right standing or in favor with God. That's what his grace did. So the context in this verse means God lavished, that word lavish means given beyond any limit, limitation, that's what it means. God lavished his love, his grace, and his forgiveness upon us and our sin. How many of you, I mean, and again, and I talk about this a lot. I, I was saved when I was eight years old. I have no doubt that's when the Lord came into my life. I started, even as an eight-year-old, I knew what that probably meant and what it looked like. I was discipled well. But, but, but here's where many of us are. Many of us have been saved since we've been small children. And, and we take for granted what I'm saying here today. This is a big deal. This is a big deal. He provided forgiveness for our sin. He provided mercy. Mercy motivated him to give us the grace that he's given us in order that we can stand before him. The Bible says in Romans 5.20, Paul says this, But where sin abounded, where sin took us, grace abounded much more. 
So here's what that means. My sin is out there. We all know it. We have sin. It's out there. But when I look at what he provided, his grace covers my sin. That's a beautiful picture of what God has done. Next, stand in God's provision of inheritance. In Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 11. And you'll notice this phrase that comes up quite a bit in, in uh, Ephesians, in him, in him. It's speaking of being in Jesus. It, mean, it literally means being in him in the provision of salvation that he gives us. And the ability to live the life we have, we have today. That's what it means. So in him, also, we have obtained an inheritance. Now, I want you to think about that. Anybody in here get a big old inheritance from family? Don't you wish you, I mean, how many of you look at all these different things and all these things these people have and all this? And, and, and listen, we got to be careful. We can't be greedy. We can't uh, become materialistic to the point it takes our eyes off of Jesus and all that kind of stuff. But, but, but when you look out there and you say, how did, that? Well, a lot of that came by way of inheritance. And we just didn't have the parents that could pull some of this off. You know, <laughs> you know what I mean? As a matter of fact, we probably ain't going to be able to pull it off much for our own kids. But, but the point I'm trying to make here is the fact that with God, can you imagine what that inheritance looks like? And then he says this, being predestined, that means determined beforehand by God, according to the purpose of him who work all things. It's not only, it speaks of the idea that he not only creates, he energizes. How? According to the counsel of his will. He urges us on to action. So, so here's what I want you to understand. We have an inheritance. It's been predetermined by God himself, that word predestined. And a lot of you are sitting there saying, oh, good, he's getting into predestination. No, I'm not. I don't have time for that this morning, okay? But, but if you want to, you can go online. Uh, there's a message there. I didn't skip it. A lot of people, you know, say the preacher just skip over. The, no, I, de I dealt with it head on uh, many uh, years ago. <laughs> Back in the Royal Invitation Part 2. Go there and you'll find where... We spoke about it here from, the, from the, uh, the, the stage. But it's so important for us to understand that what this inheritance is. If I were to ask you, what is the inheritance that God has for us through Jesus? I think many of you would say heaven. And you'd be right. It's heaven. Heaven's part of it. How about this? An existence without battle. Man, that's a good one, right? In the context of what we're studying. An existence without battle. But you know what else it is? It's stuff we need for daily living. It's wisdom. It's discernment. It's guidance. It's victory. We're not to, li we're not to live in our shame any longer and our guilt any longer. We have victory according to what Jesus provides. Power and even peace. But here's another one. This is probably the most important. We also, through this inheritance, have the Holy Spirit. And so you see here, stand in God's provision of the Holy Spirit. Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 13. In him, there's that phrase again, you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. How the gospel came about. In whom also, having believed, that means your belief leads to faith, you who were sealed, how were you sealed? With the Holy Spirit of promise. The word sealed there literally means an, like an official agreement. It, it almost makes it almost legal. There's legal terms associated with what God has provided for you. 
And one of those is the idea that the Holy Spirit seals the deal. And that means when you receive the provision what Jesus provides on the cross, God seals the deal by bringing the Holy Spirit to indwell you. Based on the authority of Scripture, He indwells you now. Now, the Holy Spirit of promise. Now, here's what you got to understand. The Holy Spirit and His work in you, when that begins to happen, it becomes evident. Evident. Okay? And that means... When it's evident, we can pretty much guarantee we've been sealed. The promise of salvation. The work will be evident. You may sit here and you'll say, well, wait a second. I, I, I haven't done some great thing for God. I mean, what do you mean it's evident? It can be nothing more than being convicted of sin now. You're going out here, you're living your life, and all of a sudden you, you, you say something you shouldn't say or have an attitude you shouldn't say, and all of a sudden you feel different now. used to be, yeah, I said it. <laughs> Now it's like, ooh, you feel it. You sense it. You know it ain't right. That's the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you. That's what all that's about. It, basically, when you put it all together, the guarantee of our salvation and these spiritual blessings come by way, think of this, by way of the grace of God reaching out to us, the death of Jesus redeeming us, and the Holy Spirit sealing the deal. That means that's where the assurance comes from. That he's at work in our lives, which then gives us the phrase being in Christ or having a Christ-based identity. How many of you notice everybody wants to identify something in our day and age? You, you know that? I mean, I, 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 mean, I, saw, I, I saw a woman the other day, and, and, and she basically said, well, I don't identify as that. I said, you don't identify as a woman? You're a woman. He said, I don't identify as that. Okay, what do you identify? I am, and she went on to tell something. I didn't even know what it was. I'm serious. I'm sitting here like, wow, that's impressive. I don't even know what it is. I mean, there's some, there's, everybody wants to be identified in something. But you know what the Bible says for those of us who are true followers of Jesus? That we are identified by him, in him, in him. But what do we want to do? We want to raise up our gender. This is who we identify as. I mean, our identity is in him. Next, standing God's provision of grace. The Bible says in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. I want you to consider three words in this one verse. It's loaded with theology. You have grace, you have saved, and you have faith. Grace is the source Faith is the means, and salvation is a result. Or you might say grace is the reservoir, faith is the channel, and salvation is the stream that washes away my sin. That's grace. Grace in a nutshell. Next, stand in God's provision of truth. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, and I'll, be, I'll tell you this. I may have told you before. This is my motivation for teaching God's word as clearly as I know how. It's for this reason right here. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 14, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness of deceitful plotting. The phrase tossed to and fro, it means to be thrown into confusion. It describes one who is, uh, who is unstable in their opinions. 
They fluctuate and frequently change the way they, they think or believe depending on the latest fad or, or, or what the culture's up to. They don't stick with the Word of God. They move towards the culture and what it believes. Boy, that's happening. It's a picture of a small sailboat being blown in one direction, then another by wind or the culture. It keeps changing directions. And then it says a phrase, carried about. It literally means to move from one place to another. But you see, that's the reason we need good doctrine. That's the reason you need to sit under good doctrine. Because it's your only hope. And y'all, there's, there's, listen, there, there's, there's people out there who claim they teach the gospel and they sell millions of books. You know why many of them can sell millions of books? Because what they've done, some of those who've written these books have, have attempted to take the gospel and move it towards the culture and make everybody feel okay about themselves. The Bible says the gospel is offensive. It's a stumbling block. It causes one to, to look at and discern. And that's not the way it's being presented. That's the reason we got to build our lives on truth. Next, walking. Not only standing, but how do we walk? How do we live our day to day? Walking in the shoes of the steadfast, steadfastness of the gospel. Number one, he says, walking good works. Ephesians chapter 2, verse, look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for what? For good works. Okay, there's the, where the works are. The works are not attached to the grace part. It comes later. It comes later. Once we've been touched by the grace, the works begin to flow. And here's what it means. God has determined that he will receive his greatest glory. Think about this. From taking old sinners from the gutter of life and saving them by his grace and then putting them in his work. How many of you ever um, maybe seen someone who was down and out many years ago and you had acquaintance with them and, I mean, you talking about gutter living, they were living it. And then you saw them sometimes years later and you didn't even recognize them. And basically it's all a work of God and what God did in their life. That, that's amazing. But you know what the Bible says those people are, and that would include us, we're trophies of his grace. Trophies of his grace. And do you know something? God likes to display his trophies. I used to like to display my trophies until my wife threw them out. Can you, can, can you, can you tell I'm still bitter about that? Yes, you did throw them out. You did throw them out. <laughs> How many of y'all live in a house that's perfectly decorated? I mean, you know what I'm talking about? This goes there, this goes there. I would proudly display my trophies. And I don't have many of them. I would proudly display them. Why don't we move them to the garage? We set up a table and put a cloth on it and put them there. And I'm like, hmm, these are my trophies. I want to proudly display my trophies. Them things disappeared not long after that. <laughs> you know you threw them away. <clears throat> but think about this. We are literally trophies of God. And Tina can't throw you away. 
I'm serious. You, he puts you on display. He puts you on display. I'll hear about this later today. But anyway, <laughs> next, what worthy of your calling? Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Now, the calling represents the time in which you trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior. It was that time when the Holy Spirit began to move on your heart and, and the promises of salvation became apparent to you. You turned from your sin by faith, placed your faith in Jesus Christ. And so as a result of all that, there came the calling. You received by faith through repentance what Jesus provided through the cross. That was the calling. It is at that time you were placed in Christ with others who have done the same. Now, from this point on, you then begin to live in unity with the others who are in the same category as you. The life he intends for you to live, not only in him, but also for him. If you were to do a study of the letter that Paul wrote to the Ephesians, here's what you'll find. The first three chapters, we preached on this many years ago. The first three chapters are dedicated on who we are in him. Chapters 4, 5, and 6 is dedicated to what we are to do for him or on his behalf. Okay? So if you want to study it, that's a great way to study it. Now, what does he say in verse 2 of chapter 4? How do we do this? How do we live with others who have been called, the same as we? With all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love. How many of you have to bear with someone? That's hard to do, isn't it? I mean, I got people that, that frustrate me. None of y'all, of course. Maybe, maybe her. <laughs> but but it, 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 I mean, think about this. Long-suffering, bearing with one another. How? In love. Endeavoring to keep the unity. So basically, why am I doing this? Why am I coming in humility gentleness and how I treat others with long-suffering, have a patient with them, bearing with them in love. Why am I doing this? Endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Can, can I tell you one thing that's said about this church, and I've heard it more than, I mean, and let's face it, we've had a lot of people join our church in the last 18 months. There's been a lot of people. But the one thing that I hear that really stands out is I sense, this is what they'll tell you, I sense that there's a unity here. A unity here. Let me just say that. If it's apparent to someone who just kind of comes by and joins our church, and we're so grateful for you, and they're here, and now they're part of the unity, guess who else has recognized the unity? The enemy. And the enemy will not settle for unity in the church. So you know what we got to do? We got to up, up the prayers. God continue to bring unity to this body. That we may reach those that you called us to reach. That we won't be distractions where we're tripping over ourselves in our attempt to reach the community with the gospel of Jesus Christ and the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We don't need those distractions. And thank God there is that spirit of peace here. And I'm telling you, you sure make it easy for a pastor to pastor in a situation like that. 
I know some men, I, I really do, and I hear their hearts, and I watch what they're going through, and, and, and it is tough. I, I don't, I'll be honest with you, maybe God gave me the easy job just because he knew I couldn't handle what these guys are going through. They're fighting hell by the acre in some of their churches. And, 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 and I'm not saying the pastor's never wrong. Sometimes the pastor makes his own problems. I, I get that. But there's a lot of cases out there where churches just don't have unity. And it's a major distraction of the call of God that God, he's placed on that church. We need to pray for God's unity and that calling that he places on all of us. Next, walk differently than the world. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17. This I say, therefore, in testifying the Lord, that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. Now, if you were to say, well, what's a Gentile? A Gentile really is someone who's not a Jew. That is what a Gentile is. But in the terminology that's being written in the, in the New Testament, what it means is someone who's outside the faith. Okay? And so he's talking about those who are outside the faith, those, those who live as the world. What does he say? Look at the phrase, no longer implies that change is an identifiable mark for a follower of Jesus Christ. There's a change. The word Gentile here in this context is a reference to the Greek culture of the world in which they were living. Now, they were living in the Roman Empire, but the Greek culture was one that was being of the influence, okay? Its philosophies, its perspectives, the systems of greed, its behaviors, all that was on display in the first century. A lot of what's on display today. And what does he say? He said, we know from Romans 12, 12, 1, and do not be conformed to this world. Their actions, their behaviors. And he's literally saying they are born in a flawed mind, the word futility refers to, the, to that which fails to produce a desired result. And so what happened is those who are outside the faith, they have ambition, they have motivation, they do all these different things. But what he's saying, if you're outside the faith and what Christ provides, you're living in futility. What you're hoping for and what you're shooting for will always miss. Did you know Solomon said that in Ecclesiastes? Your lifelong pursuits outside of Christ. You're, you're, you're living not for eternity. It's all, we live, in a, we live in a world that's depraved. We live in a world that it may give back for a little while, but it, if we put too much faith in that, it all comes crashing down. And you've seen that. We've seen that. And he says, live differently than that. It leads to, to emptiness, ruin, frustration, hopelessness. That's the reason we're seeing suicide rates go through the roof. The further our nation moves away from uh, Christian values and what God has set forth in his word, the more we move away from it, the more we'll see all these things continue to happen because that influence of hope is being removed. And then he says in Colossians 2.8, Beware lest anyone cheat you or fool you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the traditions of men, according to the basic principles of this world, and not according to Christ. Next, walk in love. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 2. And walk in love as Christ also has loved us and has given himself for us, an offering and a sacrifice to God for a sweet-smelling aroma. If you want to be someone who pleases the heart of God, you love like Jesus. You love like Jesus loved. 
How many of you are capable of doing that? <laughs> That's a big command. To love like Jesus loved is amazing when you think about it. And so in this context, it means our lives are to, to be controlled, to be driven, to be defined by love. God's purpose in redemption is to make us more like his son. God's love for Christ and for us calls the Father, think about this, calls the Father to accept the offering and sacrifice of the son on the cross. I want you to think about what was going on on the cross. What was going on on the cross was this. Jesus took on the sins, our sins, and then God punished that sin on him. Now, here's what's ironic about all that. All that was happening, I can't imagine what that would be from God the Father's perspective. All that was happening, and yet the Bible says that sacrifices that are presented to him are a sweet-smelling aroma. It's literally something that it, it, it has the idea of worship associated with it. All that was going on while he was on the cross because he was the sacrifice. And the Bible says when there's a sacrifice that's, that's put towards him, he's in heaven and it's a sweet aroma. How many of you loved it when your mom would cook something that you loved and you could smell it when you were in the room? You know, for me, it was peanut butter and jelly. I just love the way she made No, I'm joking. I'm joking. No, but I want you to think about it. I mean, there's those things and you can smell and you can identify and you're like, that's a sweet smelling aroma. Anyone who's got the, 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 the outdoor grill going, how many of you, when you smell that, it's like something good going on there? You know what I mean? And so there is that idea that we associate, but think about God in heaven and that sweet smell and aroma that comes to him. That's, that was actually, not only was the sin placed on his son, but then he punished it on him. And then the Bible literally says, when you begin to look at what it says in the full context of the, of the Old Testament, that that was a sweet-smelling savor to God. Why would it be that? Because of what it would give us. It would give us grace. It would give us right standing before him. Think about that love. That's what he's talking about. Walk in the light, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. Now notice the terminology here. This is important for you to notice this. It doesn't say you walked in darkness. What did it say? You were the darkness. You were the darkness. If there was darkness there, it was because at one time you brought the darkness. Wow. That's hard hitting. You mean I was in darkness? Yeah. Easily deceived, walking away from God, object of God's wrath. All that was who I was before I came to terms with the gospel that God provides. But here's the great part about it. It also doesn't read you are walking in the light. You are the light. Now, it doesn't mean like when Jesus said, I am the light. That mean now we're deity has far does not mean that at all, but it does mean we're capable of bringing the light to certain situations to certain people. How, how do we do that? Who resides in us? The Holy Spirit of God. That's light. The three in one: the whole, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all the same. They have different tasks, but they're all the same. And so I'm bringing the light. That lady at the fair the other night. She, she, was, she was bringing the light. 
And then she found out I was bringing the light. And then she had a hallelujah fit. And so, <laughs> do you see what I'm saying? We bring the light. You are not defined by what you do or think, but by who you are and whose you are. Verse 8 is a sharp contrast when you really think about it. That reveals conversion, that reveals transformation. Moving from darkness to light is a radical change. Now let me tell you this. Salvation should be a radical change. Now does it bring perfection? Nope, I haven't pulled that one off yet. Neither of you. But it does bring change. Now, how do we fulfill the command to live as light? This is not on your outline. I'm going to quickly go through this. Light is pure and clear. That means it's clean. Light penetrates. This, this, when we say we are of light, here's what we know light to be. Light penetrates. It cuts through and eliminates darkness. Light enlightens. It enlarges a person's vision and knowledge. Light reveals it clears the path for truth. Light warns. It warns of danger that lies ahead of a person's path. Light guides. It directs the path to travel. Light, we know, strips away darkness. Light clears away chaos. How many of you remember times in your life where you just felt like everything was so chaotic and so unclear? I don't know about you, but I, I've been there when God called me light, I've been there before. It's only because I've allowed the darkness to creep in. But he says, this is what you should be. Light discerns between right and wrong. And lastly, light protects. It protects a person from the dangers of darkness, from, from uh, stumbling or falling. So walking in the light. Now, here's important. this is important to note. Walking in the light. And being the light will never bring perfection in this world. It won't bring it. But here's what it will do. You will not live comfortably no longer in the darkness. There's always the Spirit of God who is light, desiring light, not the darkness that we bring into, the, into, into our lives. And so if you're saying, am I, am I living in a, in, with an inner conflict? It's because you who have the light in you is, is basically attempting to live in the darkness that that's not so, supposed to be a part of you. That's going to be major conflict. You won't be settled in living there. Shows you a difference. Next, walk carefully. Ephesians 5.15, see then she walked circumspectly, not as fools, but as wise. The word circumspectly is characterized by exactness, thoroughness, precision, and accuracy. He's basically saying, be careful. Be careful. It's the idea of looking, examining, and investigating something with great care and alertness. You're looking into this world. You're trying to discern. You're trying to, to understand. And listen, our children are counting on us to do this. You know that, right? They're counting on us to, 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 to show we're, when, when, when they're walking in dark that we need to show them. Walking circumspectly literally means be careful how you live your life. Not as fools, but as wise. This means we are to deliberate, 
we are to be delivered in how we live. Not just through drifting through life, not stumbling through life, not just responding foolishly to life. How many of you remember the little jingle, Oh, be careful, little eyes, what you see? You want me to sing that one for you? I ain't doing it, but I'll read it to you. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. Be careful, little eyes, what you see. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little eyes, what you see. Here's another verse. Oh, be careful, little feet, where you go. Be careful, little feet, where you go. For the Father up above is looking down in love. So be careful, little feet, where you go. That means walking circumspectly. Walking. And then I want to close with these two passages. If you put all together what I've been talking about and the care that you should have to, to walk circumspectly, here's what it looks like. First Peter chapter 5, casting all your cares, all your anxieties, worries, concerns, once and for all, on him. For he cares about you. God cares us with the deepest of affection. He watches over us. And then he says, be sober. That means to be well-balanced, self-disciplined. Be alert and cautious at all times. That enemy of yours, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, fiercely hungry, seeking someone to devour. But resist him. Be firm in your faith against his attack, rooted, established, immovable, knowing that the same experience of suffering are being experienced by your brothers and sisters throughout the world. We're not the only one who's a target. We should find others. That's the reason we believe connect groups are so important to do life with, to share life with, to to say, you know something, I got you back. I'm going to be praying for you about this next week. It sounds like this could be very difficult for you, this temptation, this whatever. We need each other. And then John chapter 14, from the words of Jesus himself, peace I leave with you, my perfect peace I give to you. Not as the world gives gives do I give to you, do not let your heart be troubled, nor let it be afraid. Let my perfect peace calm you in every circumstance and give you courage and strength for every challenge. So here's the conclusion. If we're to stand on the promises, if we're to walk where God desires us to walk, it's got to look different than the rest of the world. And one of the greatest ways we'll sense that we're different than the world is how we view peace. The gospel of what? Peace. It all comes down to peace. Here it is. If we desire, here's the conclusion. If we desire peace in our lives, it will be a work that is supernatural. True peace in our daily walk can only be realized in the gospel and living in what it provides. And then here's the application. Are you living within a supernatural peace provided by the gospel? And then here's the verse I want to leave with you. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And then is when you'll see the supernatural peace. A peace that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So if you were to say, tell me the evidence that I've received the provision of the gospel a peace in my life. Let me just tell you, one sign is this. There will be a supernatural peace that visits your life. When, 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 before, when you were in darkness and you had your anxieties and all these different things, that doesn't mean, that mean you 
fear and worry at times, but it means really it's the caliber of peace that we have in our lives. And you know where it comes from? It comes from that inner peace that God desires to develop in our hearts. And guess who will help us get there? The Bible says the Holy Spirit will God teach us and convict us. And if you'll let him do his job, you'll not only be the light, you'll live in peace. You'll live in peace. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you right now, and we thank you so much for your word this morning. Lord, we thank you for what it teaches us. Father, I just pray for each one in this room. Maybe there's someone here today that's never uh, uh, encountered your gospel in a way that's changed their life, that brought them into a right relationship with you through Jesus. Father, I pray that before they leave here today, they talk to myself or one of the other pastors or email us this week, that we can talk about what this means. Father, I, I thank you for just a little lady there Friday night at the fair who was concerned about the souls of people who boldly asked the question to everyone who came by her. Father, I just thank you that there are those who take seriously bringing the gospel of peace to the people. Help us to be those people. And then, Father, I pray that you'll help us as we walk daily as light. As light, that's what you say we are. Not as those who are tossed to and fro because of the darkness, but we would recognize the light. We thank you for what you've taught us here today. In Jesus' name, amen.